Well, as I said a minute ago, it's a really, it's a treat to have Doug w with us today. He's going to tell you a little bit about, about himself. Um, uh, Doug was last year at our church a little over five years ago, and um, uh, I met, met him before that uh, at a per perspectives course. And so anyway, he's with an, an organization called Ethnos 360, and there are, are some materials out in the foyer that you can pick up that, that, that describe the ministry uh, the church plant, plant, church planting ministry that they have, and um, I don't need to say, say anything else. Doug, why don't you come on and and introduce introduce yourself? Well, good morning, all. Um, yeah, Ethnos Three Sixty used to be called New Tribes Mission. So if you're familiar with New Tribes, then you're familiar with us. It's the same organization. Had one of those name changes. Uh, I don't know if it's a mid-century crisis. Uh, that we had or something, but it was one of those things that were working in some other countries and it was just more profitable for us to, to shift our name. Um, kind of want to uh, start off a little bit. Well, let me say this. Uh, since I've seen you last, it's five and a half years ago. I was just looking it up this morning, but I was here last. I've had a triple bypass since then, so that really helped me. Best thing that ever happened. I probably, when I had it, had about a month to go and I would have, uh, well, been with the Lord for that uh, matter, but He's decided to keep me on a little bit longer to talk to college students and challenge them. And uh, really, uh, this is part of the end of a long trip. I went to, drove to Boulder, Colorado and met with uh, Colorado State, uh, Colorado Mines, and uh, uh, University of Colorado there, CU. Then went down to Phoenix to talk to some people at, uh, at um, Arizona State, and then over to Tucson, University of Arizona. Then here, finishing this up and go back home be home in a couple of days and go get some more colleges and stuff. So been a real, real busy semester this year. So uh, I've really been appreciative of that because of all the opportunities of young folks who really do want to do something with their lives rather than, as a matter of fact, a lot of them are fairly new believers. So they haven't learned that other Christians don't want to do this yet. And so what we do is we find them in this situation and we tell them, you know what? There are people that haven't had a chance to hear and they never will unless somebody physically goes and tells them. So they're getting excited about that, and so I've been able to, to uh, uh, be a part of that, and the Lord has had me do this. Um, I'll show the first slide here. Um, see if that comes up. I just want to say from Kansas, we want to thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. We are so happy for your export. We, I mean, even though I'm a KU guy, I am thankful, thankful, thankful for you guys. Uh, we love this guy. Uh, it's really funny. I was teaching perspectives down in Tyler, Texas, and the guy I was staying with used to be his principal. So that was kind of neat. I said, ah, oh, I'm running into, hopefully I'll meet him one of these days. But anyway, uh, but anyway, we love the guy. He's been fun to watch and exciting. And I'm glad. I've heard that he has restored your somewhat faith in pro football again, and you guys get to watch a little bit more. So that's been kind of fun. So we're very, very thankful to you. <clears throat> Next one. Uh, this is my wife and I. Uh, we've been married 47 years, so we're very, very grateful for that. Um, I used to do a thing where I would tell people about my first wife and uh, talk about how that was, and then I'd go on with the sermon, then halfway through the sermon, I said, oh, by the way, I'm still married to my first wife, you know. <laughs> so uh, Cheryl and I, uh, we've been, she's, um, she's the anchor in our home, you know. She's the one that came, manages that, takes care of that, she is not much of a traveler, but I've got pictures of her hiking over the mountains of New Guinea at 40 years of age with three children, and, and uh, I actually developed this sermon around her called uh, In Praise of Missionary Wives, but the subtitle is The Adventures of the Most Non-Adventurous Woman in the World. <laughs> Cheryl's like that. She loves the title. She thinks it fits her so well, but she's a real blessing to be around. We have more fun than a barrel of monkeys, I'll tell you. Uh, all our years of being married, we really uh, looked good, uh, enjoyed that. Next one. Okay, this is Papua New Guinea. So this is where we worked. We worked over in the, a tribe called the Solong, just like Solong, you know. And so the Pungasusma Kineska Yom, Yonga Kineska Gorta Si, Waka Yom, Yomka Gati Lokamla Tap. At the Gunasi, you got the Lokamla Tap, Elimino Kipsi, Nati Gati Lokamla Tap Bull. Okay, Yomka Luka Gati Lokamla Tap. Basically, I said, you guys don't have a clue of what I'm saying, do you? <laughs> and that's how you would say that in our tribal language. So we uh, were the first white people to ever learn their language, and we put that into a written form. Uh, there's a copy of our Bible out there on the table out there if you want to look at it. It's a waterproof Bible. 
Uh, it's kind of neat. I was at camp this summer, and I was on the diving board, and I was telling the kids, this is what we used to have, and then I fumbled it and dropped it into the pool, and all the kids go diving in trying to save it, and they're shaking it off, and they hand it to me, and I shook it off again, and I threw it back out in the pool again, <laughs> and they were all freaking out. They said, that's what a waterproof Bible is for, you know, for things that happen. You could throw it in the ocean, let it sit there for a year, shake it out, wash it off, and, year in, and let it dry out a little bit, and it'd be back to normal. So, matter of fact, somebody from my home church uh, in Wichita told me that their daughter swims at the University of Kentucky and said their swimming suits are made out of paper. I said, really? And, he said, and then I got to think, I'll bet you that's where the technology came from, was something like that. So it's a good one. Next slide. So this is, uh, this is where we lived right there. That's New Britain, one of the provinces in Papua New Guinea. Uh, New Guinea is a country of about the size of California. It has about 6, 7 million people, but it has 860, over 860 languages. It's the most culturally diverse country in the world. We could get in a boat, go 15 minutes from where I was at, and it was another language I couldn't understand if my life depended on it. So there's tons and tons of people that still reach, need to be reached. The Joshua Project has in their book, they said, Papua New Guinea has been reached. Now, there's only one unreached people group left in Papua New Guinea, and it's the dispersed Jews from Israel. I said, okay. I said, I don't think I ever saw a Jew in New Guinea in my whole life, and I don't think any of our missionaries have. So I don't know where they're getting their information, but trust me, there's lots of tribes that still have to be reached. They don't understand. So uh, be careful with statistics sometimes when you hear them. If they sound too sensational one way or the other, uh, I'd be have flags going up. Just what sounds, you know, listen uh, to people that have been there and done that. Next one. This is where we lived. This is where my poor children had to grow up. Uh, they used to see whales and killer whales and dolphins and flying fish and stingrays and barracuda and sharks and everything. And well, basically, SeaWorld came to us. So we got to see all that, see uh, stingrays flying up out of the water. We saw had killer whales coming right for us one time. Next slide. So this is kind of another picture just to show you how clear the water is. Uh, it was beautiful. The most dangerous thing about living there was falling coconuts. Uh, you had to keep an eye out for those. Those were the ones you worked for. But this is where we lived. Our house is that middle one. Uh, our first partner's house is that one on the far right. Our second partner's uh, house is the one on the left. Uh, but anyway, that's where we uh, got to live, and it was uh, beautiful. We didn't uh, choose that place. God chose it for us. There were people that wanted to hear, and so uh, we were there. Next slide. And in 2017, uh, in January, uh, dedicated our New Testament. So that's it right there. Uh, I didn't do most of that. I just, uh, uh, for to be honest with you, I did all the Old Testament portions that we had, uh, Mark and some other, but my partner actually did most of that. So I had about a thousand verses translated and about 700 pages of teaching material before we came back. And then uh, our reason for coming back is we had family members who were dying that we had to come back and take care of. And during the time that time, the mission asked me to do what I'm doing now which is just trying to explain to people who we are, what we do, and why we do our work the way we do it. And so I spend a lot of time trying to invest in people, help them to understand so they can make an informed choice. Um, so anyway, you can go to the next one. I think it's just a blank one. Oh, no, this is the end result. This is what we, sh was there a, bl a black slide after the, the next one? Okay, all right. Oh, no, go back one if you want. This right here, if I could say anything, this is the end goal of everything that we live, eat, and breathe for as a mission, is to see a mature church established, see an indigenous church brought to maturity. There are things in that picture that give you an idea that it's mature. One, there's a native guy teaching it, and he's not even from that village. He's from a previous village, and he's over there teaching these people. And then there's uh, men, women, children. They have Bibles. They're literate, or at least they have scripture anyway. And uh, somebody, I used to show this have my, as my display, and I was showing this to college kids, and they, every time I'd show it to them, i ask them, what do you see, what do you see? And one day, one of them come up and says, hey, there's a white guy in that picture. I look back there by that post there, and I said, oh, yeah, you're right. I said, I never noticed that. She says, but he's out of focus. I said, good metaphor. I said, that's the point. God must increase, we must decrease. And so the time comes where we start moving away and see that church brought to maturity. But everything that we could say is our end goal, that we 
everything in our mission, every support ministry, every church planning ministry is to see that take place so that they're doing the work of the, uh, that God wants them to do. So I think the next one's a black slide, isn't it? Oh, well, I was going to say if it was completely black, I would tell you that's New Guinea at nighttime. But uh, anyway, it didn't turn out. That's in with a fog. So uh, anyway. Okay, um, first of all, I want to start off. Let me start off with a word of prayer. Father, we're getting ready to think about your word. Think about what you think is important. I pray, Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my strength and redeemer. Thank you. Um, what is God's desire? What is it that he thinks is important? I was sharing with the youth down below. I said, you know, guys, if you really want to grow and mature in your Christian life, in your spiritual life, I can tell you how in one sentence. And I guarantee you, if you follow it, it will work. And the sentence goes like this. Find out what's important to the Lord and make that important to you. If you do that, you will mature. Uh, you can't help but mature. Find out what's important to the Lord and make that important to you. Uh, the only thing we're taking to heaven with us is other people. So why waste your life on something that you're not going to take with you? So get your hearts right, get your views right, find out who the Lord is and invest in what he thinks is important. Um, you know, in Acts chapter 17, I want to read a few verses here in chapter 17, starting in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every, uh, every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself Gives to all mankind, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel uh, their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Uh, as even some of your poets have said, for we indeed. We are indeed his offspring. Being therefore God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men, all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." He said he wants us to repent. What does he mean there? Is he talking about turning from sin? Is he talking about turning from this or that or whatever? Don't do this, don't do that, or do this or don't or do that. The idea of repentance, you know, is the idea of changing of the mind. It's a shift in worldview. It is a way of evaluating everything around you so that it's no longer me that's evaluating it from my cultural perspective, from my family perspective, from my church perspective but from God's perspective, whatever he deems is the right thing to do. And we sit down and we look at that and we sit down and say, Lord, what is it that you think is important? See, this is a good, a good example of that is Saul of, Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Now, he is a man, I really believe with all my heart, that man lived, ate, and breathed God. Day in, day out. That's all he thought about. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin, and so on, concerning the law, blameless. And he went on and on. I think his whole life was absolutely focused on who God was. But like he said later on, the things that he did many times, he did in ignorance and in unbelief. So he comes along, and he's on his way to grab some more people, uh, to bring them back uh, to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Damascus. On the way there, something happens, obviously, that changes his life. This, this uh, light knocks him off his horse. He's laying there on the ground, and he hears a voice from heaven that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And Saul, I can imagine, I'm not saying this is exactly what he was thinking, but it's what I think he, I would have been thinking. So he's sitting there, he hears this voice from heaven, this voice from heaven says, you're persecuting me. So Saul asks a question. He says, who are you, Lord? Now he knows who's speaking to him, he calls him Lord, doesn't he? But I think what's going on in his mind is, okay, if the Lord says I'm persecuting him, that's the end of the discussion, I must be. So he's sitting there hearing this. And what does the Lord do? The Lord answers him. And he says, listen, Saul, he says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And then Saul asks the only logical question you can ask if you understand the first question. The first question is, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. And Saul asks the second question, what would you have me to do? Instant worldview shift. What he thought of Jesus Christ one minute is completely different from what he thought the next minute. And so there was true repentance. He changed his mind. He saw Jesus Christ from a different perspective. And so he told him, he says, what would you have me to do? And he says, your first ministry assignment, Saul, was keep quiet and be blind for three days. I'll get back to you. And Saul goes to the house of Ananias, sits there for the three days, the scales removed, and we learn in Galatians, he immediately went to, to Arabia. Immediately, I did not confer with flesh and blood, but I went into Arabia, and I think he was getting this thing settled. Man, what in the world just happened? I know it was the Lord, and if it's Jesus is the Lord, that's the end of the discussion. Him I serve. And like he said in Colossians 1, him we proclaim, him I proclaim, teaching everyone and, and uh, and warning everyone in all wisdom. Why? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. And Paul says, for this I toil. This is what I give my heart and soul to do now. Never see any doubt of that from that point on. So he's sitting there. He has to change his thinking to repent. And then we see in uh, you know Acts chapter 20. Oh, I love Acts chapter 20. I mean, I love that, this discussion with the Ephesian elders there, you know. Starting with verse 18. It says this, you yourselves know, oh, I'm sorry, and when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tents, or I'm sorry, tents, small type, that's what, with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God. The first thing I think all of us as believers really need to do is figure out who the Lord really is. Not just these de declarative statements, God is good, God is wise, all these things, but really try to understand who this person is who claims to be God. That's why out in the tribe, we start at the beginning. We start in Genesis 1. Actually, I start before then. I start with God and eternity past because that has implications to it. And our people figure this out very, very quickly. In lesson three, we, heard, we talked about Satan rebelling against God. My language helper looked at me and says, is he nuts? Is there something mentally wrong with that guy? I said, well, tell me what you're thinking. He says, Doug, you saw me make my canoe, right? I said, sure. He says, does my canoe tell me where to go? And I thought, by lesson three, he's already figured out that the sovereignty, I like to call it the sovereignness of God, that the sovereignty of God is a relational issue. He's God, everything else isn't. He's God, nothing else is. One tribal guy said it this way, God is in a category all his own. He's not like anything else. There's no comparison between God and everything else. Like he said here in the scripture, he lives, we, in him we live and move and have our being. We can't even exist unless he allows us to. The angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, the archangels, nothing can exist unless he created it and he sustained it. So there is no issue of something being lesser than God because there's no comparison with it. And so what I did with people is I tried to say, well, let me try something with you. If I give you a word, you tell me the opposite. So I go fast, they go slow, big, small, tall, short, 
uh, big, uh, small. I did that one already, but I go through these whole opposite, and then I finally come, I said, Satan. And a lot of people will sit there, and if they don't say it, they're thinking it. They, when I say Satan, they think the opposite of Satan is God. I says, no, the opposite of Satan is Michael. God has no opposite. And they're looking, they said, what do you mean? They says, well, think about it. What is the opposite of omnipresence? It's no presence. Opposite of omniscience, no knowledge. Opposite of omnipotence, no power. Basically, the opposite of God is non-existence because God exists everywhere. He is infinite in everything. So God is in a category all on His own. He's not affected by His creation. And boy, you start laying these foundations and the people say, oh, so God created the woman. So the men start getting worried because they beat their women in the past severely and many times. And they start realizing they were beating God's property. And they start thinking about stealing from other people's garden. God owns the gardens. And it starts shifting things in the way that they start because they see God as the rightful owner of everything that exists. And so we start dealing with that. And it's just amazing what we start watching. And they start realizing that God has wishes, desires for us. And it's our job to follow in or fall in with those desires what they are, what is it that he thinks is important, and making that important to us. So uh, he does that, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Why Jesus Christ? Because he's God's son. That's what the whole problem was at the Mount of Transfiguration when they tried to make these three tabernacles for uh, Moses and Elijah and so on and for the Lord Jesus. And what does the father say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He says, listen to him. And what I think he was doing was chiding those guys, setting them straight. Nobody is equal with my son. Get your act straight. And I don't think the disciples ever quite got it until the day of Pentecost, who Jesus Christ really was, that he was the Lord from heaven. Even at the, when he got ready to go back into heaven, what did they say? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is, in, uh, is put in his own power. But you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Be about the business. That's what's important. Make it important to you. Don't worry about the kingdom. That'll be taken care of. I'll deal with that in its due time. Right now, you deal with what I want you to deal with in your due time. And so we have that. So uh, it was God's desire. And in Hebrews 6.1 Excuse me here. Oops, sorry. A newer Bible here. And Hebrews 6 1. Long ago, at many times, ooh, that's one, I'm sorry, wrong chapter. Hebrews 6 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. And go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So these are issues that we should have dealt with right off the beginning. Repentance from dead works. We don't want to do the things that don't count anymore. There's an old saying that the godly man is not afraid of failure. What he's afraid of is succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. And boy, I hope we don't get in a uh, thing where we're succeeding at things that don't matter. The only, like I said, the only thing you're taking to heaven is other people, period. There's nothing else going to heaven with you. So why waste our lives on it? Why? I mean, obviously we have to live and, and function, but still at the same time, why waste our time giving ourselves, our hearts and souls for things that don't matter? And so we do that in Hebrews 6, repentance toward God, and then it says, and then faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, uh, we, we don't want to lay those foundations again. We should be settled on who Jesus Christ is and what he has accomplished for us. It should never have to be brought up once we've got that settled because it lines up with the nature of God himself, that he did this all throughout the Old Testament. We see God trying to pull people towards him, to bring them back, always trying to do that. And so he's always wanting to, uh, to uh, redeem mankind he doesn't want it. A friend of mine says, you know, you've all heard this statement, you know, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. A friend of mine says it this way. He says, God hates the sin because of what it does to the sinner. 
And I think there's a lot of validity in that. You know, it turns us into things that we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be the way we are. But we've got the Spirit of God living in us so we don't have to be what we once were. We don't have to operate under the dictates of the world. We can now look to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I'm weak, I'm selfish, I'll leave it in your hands. Help me through this all. I'll die to self so that you can live through me. So, those are some of God's desire. What is it He desires? He desires to reach the world. I know this. I know some things that He doesn't desire. Um, let's go to Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. Well, I'll start with verse 10. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions, our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and, and we uh, rot away because of them. How can we live? And then the Lord says this to them. He says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God's desire is for people to come to Him. It's not to destroy Him. Because he, the, the, the real, I think, crux of this statement is not that He's saying, I don't want anybody to die, but I want them to come back to me. I think the crux of this statement, the force of it, comes in what He says first. He says, as I live. In other words, as surely as I am God. I have no desire in the death of the wicked. And I mean that. He says that's what God's He's putting his emphasis, his exclamation on that. As surely as I live, I don't want anybody to go to hell. I don't want anybody to die and be destroyed. But that if people turn from their way and live. And so that's what he's wanting here. And Ezekiel 33, 11. 2 Peter 3:9, we know he says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance that we all shift our thinking towards God and say, you know, Lord, whatever you say is right and true and just and good and all of those things, it's gracious. All that God is, He's bringing towards me. Not because He needs it, but because I need it. Man, I am lost apart from Him. But I'm secure because of Him. I am absolutely and totally secure. I do the things I do not because I... Uh, I'm earning something or because I have to. I do it because I want to. I want to serve Him. Look what He did for me. Why wouldn't I show gratitude towards that? Man, somebody doing something like that? Um, so I'm very, very grateful for that. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to be, uh, uh, any should perish. First Timothy 2.4 says, He desires all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. He wants us to understand Him and so on. So what is our responsibility? Second Corinthians, I want to go to this because I want to spend a little time on this. Second Corinthians chapter 5. I think this is just such a powerful, powerful statement that Paul is talking about here and trying to get across to these people. <clears throat> so I'm just going to start at the beginning. Second Corinthians 5 verse 1. For we know Yes, for we know that if uh, the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, talk about our bodies, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So whatever we're going to be in heaven, it's not going to look like what we are now. Whatever it is, it's good. It's eternal. It, uh, it has no end to it. And it's going to be perfect. Why? Because God is perfect. And God cannot do anything that is inconsistent with His nature and character. Uh, for in this tent we groan, the one we're in. Man, how many times are we tired of being who we are? I'm sick of it most of the time. I'm going to be so glad when I die and don't have to fight the flesh anymore. I mean, even as a believer, as a missionary, it still gets me. I don't, I don't like who I am, but I do appreciate what God has done for me, and I live for Him with all my heart and soul if I can. But the, the failures that we have, and you think of, it isn't the, the things I did before I was saved. I didn't have any choice. I was a knucklehead back then. I just now became a saved knucklehead. 
you know. And I'm glad that the Lord decided to, to do what he did with me. He says, for in this tent we groan, longing to be put on, uh, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we were still in this tent, we groaned, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. He is the down payment, the earnest of our inheritance. I like the way the King James used to use that, because if anybody's bought a home, they know what earnest payment is. The idea that it's that down payment, but it's a guarantee to the person that they're going to buy that house. And if you don't buy it, you lose it. You lose your earnest payment. But if you, if, but with God, when he gives his earnest, which is the Spirit of God dwelling in us, either God's telling the truth or he's not. And since God is telling the truth, he cannot lie, then we've got it. We're his. We've been saved. I mean, we're secure in him. Um, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, the worst that could happen is if he did decide not to do it, we still get the Spirit. That's the earnest, that's the down payment. Okay? But we're not going to lose it. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. I wonder how many of us think about that, walking by faith. You know, I've told people I would rather never see a miracle for the, uh, my whole life knowing that I walk by faith that he was telling the truth than see, be a person who has to see miracles to believe him. See, that was the problem with the Pharisees. They always said, show us and we'll believe. Lord Jesus was saying, believe and I'll show you. You know, but they wouldn't do it. They didn't want to. They wanted to see the signs. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that everyone may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So and then he starts talking about this. I like this portion right here. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We know what's going to happen to the saved and unsaved. So we persuade people. Live for Jesus Christ. That's all that's worth it. But, we are, uh, but what we are is known to God, and I hope is also known uh, to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not, um, and not about what is in the heart. People out there, you know, they, they just, they're the big ministries, you know, the fancy stuff, you know, the people that everybody sees. But the real people that are doing it, they're not even known. They're just down there behind the scenes, going underneath, they're discipling others, they're being ministered, they're helping one another. You know, I always uh, get into discussions with people sometimes about different things, about spiritual gifts, and so I always ask them this question. I says, can you name me one spiritual gift that was ever meant to benefit the person who had it? And that's the thing you need to find out. No spiritual gift was ever given to benefit you. It was meant to benefit somebody else. So if I have the gift of helps, how does that help me? I help myself? Oh, I guess that fits the Scripture. It says God helps those who help themselves. That must be my spiritual gift. No. Or the gift of teaching. Or the gift of administration. All those things are gifts to help other people. So every spiritual gift that God gave is meant to benefit others, not yourself. So, um, okay. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we, are of our, uh, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. I hope I'm doing this in the right mind, to be honest with you. I hate to be coming here and telling you something I'm not in my right mind. For the love of Christ controls us. I, I like the, the King James says the love of Christ constrains us. Now, I was at camp one year, and these kids were memorizing verses, and he was memorizing, he was quoting this verse to me. And sometimes kids will do things in a way that really make you think. And what he did is he, he's quoted it wrong. But it made me think about what the word constrain really means. And he says, for the love of Christ restrains us because we make this judgment. And I started laughing. I said, well, that doesn't say restrain. It says to control or to or restrain. It says to constrain. And then I got to thinking, hey, wait a minute. That kid's giving me an idea. The love of Christ restrains us. Can you imagine the love of Christ holding you back 
so you couldn't do something. So to constrain means the absolute opposite. It doesn't mean just let them go. It means you're launching and putting them out in this gigantic bungee cord and launching them out there. That's the idea. Man, I can't help myself. My tribal guy says, I can't not do this. That's what constrain means is that you're compelled. You're, it's just like you live, eat, and breathe it. It's not, there's no other option. That's the love of Christ constraining us because we made a judgment. And what was that judgment? That if one died for all, then all are dead. And that he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. See, that's what the love of Christ constrains us to do, is to live for him. He died for all. And so our job is to go and tell all, everybody, whoever's out there who hasn't heard. God doesn't care for the people in New Guinea and the tribe I was in any more than he does the people here in Lubbock. His love is an infinite love that has no limits. There is no barrier to it. It's just God, well, we'll get to it here in just a second. But what does that mean? For the, um, I'm sorry, because we have concluded uh, one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't look at them in the same way we used to. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, in other words, you thought about him um, uh, in the way he was, we regard him that way no longer. I was at our Bible school, and I was sitting there. I said, you know, kids, I said, I want to ask you something. I said, if God could become a man, what do you think he would be like? And they're sitting there thinking, <laughs> I'm just sitting there in my own mind. I, didn't, I learned as a tribal church man to refrain from facial expressions because you don't want people to know what you're thinking. So I'm sitting there thinking, I'm waiting a little bit, and they're just sitting there and says, okay, anybody got an answer? And nobody raised their hand and says, have you ever thought Jesus Christ? I says, if God would become a man, that's who it would be. He was that. He was God in human flesh. How could you not know that? Your Bible school students were crying out loud. And they just all sat there and looked kind of funny. I says, gee, many Christmas. That's exactly what he is. He is God in the flesh. That's what God would look like if he became a man, was Jesus Christ. We regard no one according to the flesh, even though, okay. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So therefore, we can't look at him as the old man. We have to look at him as a new man. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Folks, I don't care what you think your ministry is. I don't care what your job is. Your job is to see people reconciled to Jesus Christ. That is your ministry. I don't care if you're old, if you're young, if you're male, if you're female, if you're a missionary, if you're a layperson, pastor. Every single person here that's in this room, is that's your ministry, is the ministry of reconciliation. God has given that to us. Who? The church. The church's job is to see people reconciled to him. That's our job. We don't do the reconciling. Obviously, God does. But our job, how do we know that it's our job? Well, then he goes on right after that and says something else. Um, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. There it is, him doing it. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. King James says, uh, and has commissioned, and he's given us that commission. So it's interesting, um, uh, Jesus Christ, in talking about him, it says uh, that God has given, or let me put it this way, entrusted two things to Jesus Christ. He says, all, Jesus said this in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. If it's been given to him, that means somebody else had it to begin with. And who was it? The Father. The Father has given it to the Son. And he says, all judgment has been committed to the Son. Nobody else is going to get it. Nobody else has all the authority. Jesus Christ has all authority in the spiritual realm, the physical realm. That means how much is left over for Satan? None. Christ has it all. Now, do you think for one minute that God's going to bypass his Son 
for any of these things, when he says he's given all authority to the Son and he's committed all judgment to the Son, do you think the Father's going to bypass his Son at all to do either one of those two? No, he isn't. And guess what? He's not going to bypass the church in order to do his work. He is given to us. It's the same word, given. He's given to us, the church, the ministry of reconciliation. And he's committed unto us the word of reconciliation, the means by which people are reconciled to him. So he says he's given us that. Uh, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, not through somebody else, not through angels, but through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. So our responsibility, we're not to be, we're, be, we're to be about his, the master's business. I don't know where God has each and every one of you. No one should ever fear serving Jesus Christ no matter where he wants us to go. We shouldn't. If we do, it's because we have a real shallow view of who God really is. The all-powerful one, the supreme one, the sovereign one, the one who owns every atom in the universe. Nothing happens without his knowledge. But nothing can happen to you that he isn't there with you. He's omnipresent. Or as one girl said, God is so big that he doesn't have to go anywhere. And so he's there already. He's not, he doesn't see the future. He is the future. He's there. Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He inhabits eternity. And all of God inhabits eternity, not just one aspect of him. So that being said, I want to thank you guys very much. You've been, uh, I really appreciated when uh, Brother Mark came out to Missouri to see the train. That is a blessing to me. You don't understand how few churches really get involved like that, where they want to see what their people are being going towards or what kind of things are going to happen out there. Those are encouragements to us as an organization. We're not the be-all and end-all. We work together with local churches so that their missionaries can, can uh, go out and do an effective job. But I'll tell you this, it's going to take time, time to prepare and time to do the job. We don't do things quickly. We take time because God did. Somebody asked me one time about even how we teach, teaching the Bible from the beginning to end. And I had a guy at Dallas Seminary ask me, he said, how many, how many lessons did it take you to get to the gospel presentation? I said, 68. He goes, 68? He says, don't you think there's something wrong with waiting that long to give him the gospel? So I said, well, I'll answer your question if you'll answer mine first. And he said, okay. I says, do you think there's anything wrong with God waiting 4,000 years to give people the gospel? He goes, man, that's hitting below the belt. I said, yeah. I said, but anyway, he knew. I says, I just wanted to help him think it through. It takes time to do a job well. Talking about short-term missions, I says, what do you think about short-term farming or short-term cardiology or short-term banking? I says, nobody thinks in those terms, those businesses, but why do we think that the Lord deserves that? Just a short-term mentality about his work. Thank you, Father, for the folks here at the church. I am privileged to be in their presence. I don't know what you've got for each and every one here. For those that are here, I ask, Father, that you'll Help them to understand more and more who you really are and gain strength through that and courage uh, to do whatever you want to do, whether it's giving, praying, going, whatever it is you have for them to do. But regardless of what they do, we know that our job is to see people reconciled to Jesus Christ. Help them to do it well, take the time, and invest in others. As I said before, ultimately, the only thing that's going to heaven with us is other people. So, Father, I thank you for your grace and your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, uh, wait, sorry, that last slide, I forgot. This is one I always show. It's the last one I end with. I usually don't have the words up there, but look at that bridge there. Can you imagine yourself and your family on that bridge in that Jeep? How many of us would really want to cross that bridge on that Jeep? Probably not many of us, would we? But then I usually have that ticker tape coming up and say, at what point is Christ no longer worth it? What's it going to take? And that bridge is a good metaphor for life. 
you know, we sit down and we get on that bridge. Some people, they say, you know, they look at that bridge, they see the round boards, the square boards, the rectangular boards, the broken boards, the boards with nails sticking up out of them, places where there aren't any boards. And they sit down and they look at that. Some will start going and then trials will come up and they'll start backing up. Some will get out there farther and the wind will start swaying that thing back and forth. I don't think so. And they start backing up. Some get all the way across and they end up backing up all the way. You know, they just drop it all and say, no more. They find a point. I hope that there's not a place in your life where you're willing to say, you know, Lord, you're worth an awful lot, but just not this much. I hope every one of you never get to that point. And I used this for quite a while like that. But then I thought of another thing that I need to say to finish this up, and I think it'll give you the, the proper perspective on the whole picture. It won't have any words that come up, and I want to ask you a question. Would it make any difference to you to know whether Jesus Christ built that bridge or not? If Christ built that bridge, would you cross it then? I says, if he built the bridge, it may as well be the Autobahn. You may as well get in your monster truck and pop wheelies all the way across. Because if the Lord built the bridge, there's nothing that's going to happen. See, God builds bridges like this in our life. The trials that we come up, whether it's finances or education or health or trials that come up, He builds bridges that look like that. That's what all those boards are. They're different trials, all hung up on rusty cable over a raging river. But He builds bridges that look like this. You know why? So that we'll learn to trust the builder and not the bridge. That's what we need to be looking at, who built it, not what does it look like. So think about that in terms of your life. Thank you. I know we're running a little bit long, but first of all, that's okay. Okay? Second of all, I want to tie what we talked about last week to what Doug shared with us this morning. And I want you to continue or consider an exercise. And let me go a step further. Let me admonish you to do this no matter what. Young or old, um, I want to ask you to do something. I want you to take some time this week, and I want you to consider where the Lord has you right now. Okay? So, Glenn Frick, you have a great job in a great company and you've worked hard to get there. You have an amazing family, and I want you to consider this week what that would look like if you just put it all on the table. Leland, you're a coach. You have a great job. You have a great family, and I want you to think about what it would be to put that on the table. Kevin, you're a med student. You've worked hard to get there. You've got a big test coming up next week. I want you to think about what it would be like to put everything you've worked hard for and just lay it on the table. And I want every person in this room to do that for where you are, wherever that might be in life. Uh, Jim Leary, you travel to Colorado every year. It's a big part of what you enjoy doing, you and Janice, in your retirement. I want you to put it on the table. And then... I want you to ask yourself the question that Doug asked us this morning. Let me rephrase that. I want you to ask the Lord the question. And here was the question. Lord, what would you have me do? And I want to encourage you. So, Glenn, I would ask that as you ask that question, you be confident in your heart that if the Lord says, I want you to stay where you're at, that you would be fully committed to be a minister of reconciliation in that place. I also want you to consider if the Lord said, I would like to lead you to a new place that you'd be willing to go there, even if it means taking everything you've put on that table and relinquishing it to his control, no matter how hard you work to get there. Lord, what would you have me do? And so I think one of two things happen that are both good in that situation. The Lord either affirms the role of your ministry of reconciliation in the place where he has you right now, or he moves you to the place where he wants you to be to best fulfill that commission. It's a win-win. You don't want to be somewhere 
that he doesn't intend for you to be to accomplish everything he's created you to be. You don't want to be there, no matter what it is or how good it might look. You want to be exactly where God created you to be, no matter what the sacrifice it takes to get there. So this week, would you please sincerely before the Lord, in the honesty of your heart, lay it all on the table and allow your heart to honestly and humbly ask that question, Lord, what would you have me do? Because whatever I do, I want to be faithful to following you. The passage that comes to my mind in the Gospels is where the man came to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. And he says, um, but I need to bury the dead. I need to bury my, fam- my father. His father was obviously alive still at the time. And I think the idea here is that the man wanted to be in a place where he had everything lined up. He could inherit, take the inheritance that was due to him from his father, have a place of security from which he could then serve the Lord. And what did the Lord say? Let the dead bury the dead, follow me. He's not being inconsiderate. He's speaking to the man's heart who was unwilling, who was only willing to follow Jesus upon conditions of comfort in his own life. That's what he's confronting. And I think sometimes we can find ourselves in similar places that we're willing to follow under the conditions of comfort in our own life. That's why I'm asking you, put your life on the table and ask the question, Lord, what would you have me do? Will you do that? Stand together and let's pray. Father, I pray for each and every one of us, myself included, that we would take some time this week to be quiet, to be still, to be humble and prayerful before you as the living God who is present with us. And Lord, as we come before you in your presence, that we would speak honestly and openly about all that is in our life that we would sincerely put all that matters most to us on the table and that we would allow ourselves to consider the question that we would speak to you in that moment, Lord, what would you have me do? And I do pray, Lord, that for every person in this room that they would answer that question, that they would hear that question answered by you better and that they would then move in that direction with full commitment to be everything that you created them to be as a minister of reconciliation wherever you call them to be. Whether that's where they're at in that moment or somewhere new that you may be leading them to, Lord, may they be courageous. May they be sincere. May they be fully devoted to going wherever you might lead them. Lord, thank you for our time this morning and the reminder of what we've all been created for as ministers of reconciliation. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.